Hope everybody is doing well. Welcome back to Systematic Theology. Um, We've been talking about God's plan of salvation for the last several weeks, uh, and we're going to continue on with that today, different aspects of God's plan of salvation, so or the doctrine of salvation. Um, if you're new to the class, I know most of y'all are returning faces, which is great, but if you're new, uh, Systematic Theology, we take a topic and we just ask what does scripture say about this topic from Genesis to Revelation? Um, so that is what we're doing with salvation. Um, and specifically today, uh, I, I thought I had bolded it on your handout, the three that we're talking about today, but I guess I didn't. So apologies there. Um, the three we're talking about today are adoption, sanctification, and perseverance. So that's seven, eight, and nine on your handout. And I heard a sheesh and yes. There's, there's a lot we could say. Um, about these three things. So two weeks ago was the last time we were here, uh, and Cliff did a great job of walking us through conversion, justification, and union with Christ. Um, Lord willing, we're going to finish this teaching on salvation next week, and then the week after that, there will be another corporate equipping class with Harshit Singh, um, who's here on April 24th. Um, One thing I do want to direct your attention to is on your handout, uh, May 29th, um, was initially a Q&A. We're going to transition that into more of a review of Systematic 2. Um, so just something to be aware of. If you missed a class or you forgot um, a certain aspect or topic or you want to go a little deeper, that might be a good place um, to do it because we're going to review everything. Um, and since we're not doing kind of an official Q&A, just make sure you ask any questions that you have as we go along. Um, don't hold those in. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Let's, um, let's pray quickly here, and then we can jump into studying salvation. Lord, thank you for this time. Um, Lord, thank you that you do save sinners, um, that you sent your son, that sinners might be reconciled to you, that we might be adopted into your family. Um, Lord, help that just to blow us away this morning. Um, don't let this be cold doctrine to us, but let it warm our hearts uh, and cause us joy. In Jesus' name, amen. So as Cliff mentioned last time, if you're a Christian, um, it should delight your heart to study God's plan of salvation. Uh, This should be something that gets you hyped uh, because it's the story of how God saved you. So you should see yourself in this teaching. It should be warm, comforting, great doctrines for you to behold. Um, You can see on your handout listed the order of salvation that kind of helps us understand how God actually applies that salvation and redemption to believers. So, you know, it goes in this order, essentially. Election, the gospel call, regeneration, conversion, justification, adoption, sanctification, perseverance, death, glorification. Um, You know, we don't often think of the order of these things, uh, and many of these events seem to overlap or happen within milliseconds of one another. So practically, it can feel like regeneration, conversion, justification, union with Christ and adoption all happen kind of at the exact same time. Um, As we continue uh, on in this order of salvation, again, as I mentioned, we're going to look at adoption, sanctification, and perseverance today. So in other words, we're going to look at how God adopts sinners into his family, how he sanctifies them, and how he holds them to the end. Again, these are some of the most comforting doctrines recorded in Scripture Um, I hope I convey that well as we go through these. These are incredibly encouraging and comforting doctrines. Um, It's a joy to study doctrines like these as a believer because they give us hope and great security in Christ. So first, let's look at um, adoption. 
I got a hibiscus LaCroix this morning. It's delicious. Okay. The doctrine of adoption um, is truly a glorious doctrine. If you've never read Knowing God by J.I. Packer, he has a chapter near the end of his book on the privilege of adoption. Um, in many ways, I would prefer to just read that entire chapter right now, uh, but I'm not going to do that. When I read that chapter on adoption, I was brought to tears. Um, I know I seem like a stoic with no emotion, but that is not true. Um, I have emotion, and I was brought to tears. This is not a doctrine that I had thought much about before a few years ago, uh, but I've thought about it a lot since I read that chapter, um, and it's a joy to teach on it this morning. So the idea of adoption, this idea, is not foreign to us. Um, most of us know somebody who is adopted, um, where they were once a stranger to a family, but they're now welcomed in um, as a child, no less than the biological children of that family. Uh, and when we talk of spiritual adoption, we mean essentially the same thing. So people who were once strangers to God, not part of his family, entering in and becoming children of God with all that comes with that. So the minute we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we receive the glorious benefit, as we talked about, of justification that we talked about last week. But we also receive adoption, um, which is not just a subsection of justification, but an entirely different and arguably more beautiful truth. So here's how Packer contrasts the two ideas, justification and adoption, in his book. This is what he says. Justification is a forensic idea conceived in terms of law and viewing God as judge. Adoption is a family idea conceived in terms of love and viewing God as father. So again, justification is a forensic idea conceived in terms of law, viewing God as judge. Adoption is a family idea conceived in terms of love and viewing God as father. So we're going to talk more about this as we go along, but if you think of salvation kind of in terms of a balance sheet, which I know you're all really excited to do, um, before God saves you, you're infinitely in debt. Um, so if you look at your P&L, your profit and loss, it's just L's. You're like, you're running out of red ink. Like, it's, it's really bad. Um, things are not looking good. Your debtors are coming to collect soon. You have nothing to pay them. When God saves you, he cancels all that debt, right? Nailing it to the cross. Justification brings your balance sheet to zero. Praise God, you're no longer in debt. You're in the black, as they say. You don't owe anybody anything anymore. There's no way you were ever going to be able to pay that, and now it's been paid for you. This is glorious. But this is where adoption kicks in. God doesn't just justify you, uh, cancel your debt, and then kind of leave you at net zero. Rather, God has decided to look at you, a criminal and a rebel against him, and not only save you from your sin and forget about your debt, but then he goes one step further and looks at you and says, I want this criminal who tried to steal my throne to be my child. He pulls up a chair for you at the family table. He talks to you as if you were his son and had never done anything wrong. And he plans to give you an inheritance beyond all measure. This is the beauty of the biblical doctrine of adoption. We're not left at net zero. Uh, rather, we're given everything in Christ as we're adopted into his family as one of God's children. So imagine for a second, you see a kid trying to steal your car. Um you'd probably be pretty upset, and rightfully so. Uh, that's your property, right? How dare they try to steal your car? If you're feeling really kind, 
you might look at the kid and say like, hey, let's just brush it off. I forgive you. Go on your way. But you're probably not going to look at the kid who's trying to steal your car and say, hey, do you want to be my kid? Do you want to be my son? This is biblical adoption, though. And this is what God did for you if you're a Christian. We weren't just trying to steal God's car, though. We were trying to steal his throne. As Greg Gilbert said last week in the corporate equipping hour, uh, we had declared war on God, and we deserve death. Yet in Christ, we can be forgiven of that and simultaneously adopted into God's family as his children if we repent of our sins and trust in Christ. He looks at criminals like us and calls us sons and daughters. At the same moment, uh, you gain freedom and you gain a father, which is glorious. The Bible makes it clear, though, that only those who trust in Christ gain this privilege. Uh, This is not something for everybody. Can't call everybody a child of God. Only those who trust in Christ gain this privilege of adoption. John 1.12 says this, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You know, if you're a Christian, I wonder how all of this strikes you this morning. Uh, In a world where relationships are just broken all over the place, divorce, loveless marriage are widespread, children are estranged from their parents and other siblings, it should strike you as wonderful that you always have a Father in Heaven who loves you and cares for you. Always. Um, So let's keep looking at where we actually see this in the Bible so you know that I'm not just kind of making all this up. Um, Let's go to Ephesians 1, 4 through 5. Could somebody read Ephesians 1, 4 and 5 for us? Awesome. Thank you. So I think it's worth noting from this verse that part of God's plan from the beginning uh, is adoption. This adoption has been planned and predestined from before the creation of the world. Um, This was always his plan for those of us who are in Christ. Uh, So another another passage here, Galatians 4, 4 through 5. Somebody read Galatians 4, 4 through 5 for us. Should just turn like a page or two back. It's great. Um, So from this verse, you can see that it's not just justification why the Son came. Um, He did come to justify, absolutely, and forgive, but also to give us this adoption um, that we were promised in Ephesians and we're now seeing in Galatians. Um, Adoption was in Christ's view as he went to the cross. Um, The Father had his own son go to the cross so that we might become his children. Let's, uh, Let's read another hard hitter, Romans 8, 14 through 17. I'll read Romans 8, 14 through 17.
Okay, Romans 8, 14 through 17 says this, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So I, I don't think I have to give much of a commentary on this verse. It's glorious. We're trying to, or we're starting to get into kind of the benefits of adoption. We're starting to see a little bit of that um, in inheritance, um, assurance, things like that. And then if you look down in Romans 8 to verse 23, um, it says this, Not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So there's a sense in which we've already been adopted uh, when we come to know Christ. And there's a sense in which we're still waiting on that uh, adoption to fully um, realize itself. Uh, As verse 23 says, we're still waiting eagerly for the full effects of it to go into place, which is awaiting us in heaven. Um, so what, what do you think it means for us that God would relate to us as Father? Like, what would that, what would that mean to you that God relates to you as Father? Yeah, absolutely. So he loves us like a father would love his children. It's good. Yeah, that's really good. So a sense of belonging, uh, belonging to the Father. And even, you know, taking that further, like belonging to a family, um, having brothers and sisters in Christ um, expressed in a local church. Uh, so I, I actually put, if you could have cheated and looked at your handout, um, seven ways God relating to us as Father impacts us. Um, and we hit on one of them. So I'm just going to go through these relatively quickly, and read these verses that I printed um, here on your, on your handout. But here are seven ways uh, that God relating to us as Father impacts us. So first, we already hit on it. He loves us like a father. First um, John 3, 1 says this, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. Um, number two, he understands us uh, so he can sympathize with us. Psalm 103, 13 and 14 says, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. The third, uh, he provides for us and gives us good gifts. Matthew 7, 11 are Jesus' words. And he says, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So he provides for us and gives good gifts. Number four, he leads us by the Holy Spirit. Romans 8.14 says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. 
Number five, he disciplines us and keeps us on the path of life. This might be the one aspect that we don't really like as much. Uh, but he disciplines us and keeps us on the path of life. Hebrews 12, 5 and 6 says this, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So just like a father would, the father disciplines his children. Number six, he makes us a family with one another. 1 Timothy 5, 1-2 says, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. So we actually are brothers and sisters together in Christ. Um, it's, it's one of the reasons why we can call each other brothers and sisters uh, in the local church, and why if somebody's not a Christian, maybe it's misleading and not ideal to call them a brother or a sister. Um, because they are, in that sense, not a brother or sister with us in Christ. Unless they are your biological brother or sister, then it makes sense to call them brother or sister. Okay. And then finally, number seven, uh, the Lord makes us an heir. So Galatians 4, 7 says, So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. 1 Corinthians 3 21 to 23 gives us a hint of what we're actually heirs of. So you're probably like, great, that I'm an heir. What do I get? Piece of bubble gum? No. 1 Corinthians 3, 21 to 23. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. So for all of these reasons, uh, Christianity is all about adoption. This is why even the act of adopting a child uh, in this life, like if you were to adopt a child, can so beautifully display the gospel to that child. Uh, when the child is told in life that they were adopted, uh, you know, they might feel slighted. They might feel uh, like they don't really belong to the family because they're not biological children. Um, but the parent who adopts them, the Christian parent who adopts them, has the opportunity to say, no, on the contrary, out of all the children in the world, just as God chose me before the foundation of the world, I chose you to be my child. Christ went through the painstaking process of securing our adoption on the cross so we could be God's children, and I went through the less painful but still difficult process of securing you as my child. God will give his adopted children all that he has, and all that I have is yours, just like my other children. I am adopted too, you can tell an adopted child, uh, into God's family, and you can be as well. In Christ, we are all adopted children, and there is no higher honor than being an adopted child in Christ. It's good stuff. Jonathan Edwards um, spoke well about this doctrine of adoption. This is kind of a long quote, but it's really good. Uh, Jonathan Edwards says this, God makes his servants his children, or his slaves his children. All that serve him, he adopts them and gives them a right to the glorious privileges of the sons of God. He calls them no more servants, but he calls them children. He manifests himself to them, makes them his intimate friends, his heirs and joint heirs with his son. He showers his love upon them and embraces them in his arms 
and dwells in their souls and makes his dwelling with them and gives, him, gives himself to them to be their father and their portion. In this life, he will frequently refresh them with the spiritual dews of heaven. He will shine upon them with beams of light and love, but hereafter he will make them perfectly happy and that forevermore. Was there ever so good a master as this? Was there ever so good a master as this who would take rebels and make them children? So this leads really well into sanctification <clears throat> because what happens, well, what happens when a child is adopted in relation to their parents and in relation to how they act? Like how does a kid start to act? if they're adopted into a family? Not a trick question. Like their parents. Yes, like their parents. Um, thank you, whoever said that. <clears throat> That's what sanctification is, is us starting to act like our dad. Um, let's turn quickly to our statement of faith um, to look at how we think about <clears throat> sanctification as a church. So here's what UBC's statement of faith says about sanctification. It's not on your handout. Sorry, it would have taken like the whole handout to print. Um, Here we go. We believe, real quick, you can look at it online if you wanted to. Okay. We believe that sanctification is both the declaration that we are holy on the basis of Christ's imputed righteousness and the process by which, according to the will of God, we are made partakers of his holiness. Progressive sanctification begins in regeneration and is carried on for the duration of life in the hearts of believers by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, the sealer and comforter, in the continual use of the appointed means, especially the word of God, the communion of the saints, self-examination, self-denial, watchfulness, and prayer. So here it is kind of phrased another way. Sanctification is that saving blessing wherein believers, by virtue of being joined to Jesus Christ, the Holy One, share in the holiness of Christ, bear the title of saints, and progressively realize the holiness that is already ours in Him. It is therefore that act of salvation in which God richly blesses us by bringing into increasing conformity, bringing us into increasing conformity to His perfect image, Jesus. So those are two really long definitions of sanctification. Can anybody define sanctification for us in less than a paragraph? It's great. Yeah, Frank says, the process of becoming more and more like Jesus. So over time, it's the death of sin over time and growth in holiness over time. So how does this compare with justification? Can somebody contrast sanctification and justification for us? Yeah, so justification is a point in time. Sanctification is an ongoing process. It's good. It's really good. There is a beginning to sanctification, like a when you're justified, sanctification begins. We're going to talk about that, but it's definitely lifelong. Anybody else? Contrast between justification and sanctification.
Yeah, that's that's really great. So sanctification is the acting of a miracle, is that what you said? Yeah, acting the miracle of justification. So justification happens, you're considered righteous, Christ's righteousness is imputed to you, and sanctification is the acting out of that reality. Um, I have a strange illustration about that upcoming, so stay tight. Um, Okay, at the moment of salvation, right, we're declared righteous because of Christ's righteousness. Um, That's justification, we're justified. Sanctification is kind of our earthly bodies just like trying to catch up to that reality, Um, that we are already righteous. We're already righteous in one sense, right? We just don't act like it sometimes. Um, We haven't yet caught up to that reality. So to illustrate this, again, it's not the most pleasant illustration, but it's the best one I could think of. Um, Imagine you got the wind knocked out of you. Like somebody just punches you really hard in the gut. Um, Just right, I mean, out of nowhere. They're like, hey, how are you? And then they just punch you right in the gut. In my experience, now I don't think I've ever had anybody just really punch me, but I have had the wind knocked out of me. In my experience, once there's a hit, it takes about a second or two before the pain kicks in. And during that second, I'm just like, when is it going to hit? And I know it's coming, and it's awful. Um, My body has not caught up to the reality of what's happened to me because it happened just so fast. Um, I think the same is true of justification and sanctification just on a much longer scale. So you went from dead to alive, from unholy to holy just so quickly. Uh, It's almost like we're in that couple of seconds right now and our bodies are like trying to catch up to the reality of what's happened to us um, before we truly feel the effect of that justification. So our bodies are now trying to play catch up to what's already true, that we're righteous in Christ. So we stumble and we fail, um, but over time, our trajectory should be toward holiness and Christ-likeness and away from sin. Um, If your trajectory is not like that over a long period of time, you should absolutely be concerned about your salvation. Um, and that is not something that I say lightly. That's not something I'd say about a lot of things. But if you can't look at a trajectory over a long period of time and see yourself growing in holiness and putting sin to death, you should be concerned. Uh, a few things that we should note about the nature of sanctification. Um, these are listed on your handout. First, uh, sanctification is definitive, or there is a, a, basically a start point is what that's getting at. And it occurs the moment that we're regenerated. So when we're regenerated um, and united with Christ, there's a definitive breach with sin uh, and the setting apart or committing to holiness and righteousness in the sinner. Paul talks about this in Romans 6 um, where he says we've died to sin, we've been made alive in Christ. Sin no longer reigns in us. We're no longer under the power of sin. Um, So that initial setting apart from sin is what we might call definitive sanctification. Like it has begun, it is happening. Um, whereas we were slaves to sin before our conversion, through our union with Christ in his death and resurrection, we have been definitively sanctified, such that we are no longer slaves to sin, no longer under the law, uh, but are now walking by grace. So Wayne Grudem puts it this way, um, once we have been born again, there's a moral change that happens in us such that we cannot continue to sin as a habit or pattern of life because the power of new spiritual life within us keeps us from yielding to a life of sin. I think his wording is really important here. 
Because it's not that we don't ever sin. And certainly we sin and we stumble. And Christians sin big sins sometimes. But what he says here is, we cannot continue to sin as a habit or pattern of life. It can't define our lives anymore. It shouldn't define our lives anymore. Because the power of new spiritual life within us keeps us from yielding to a life of sin. Not occasional sins, uh, but rather a life that's marked by sin. Um, and that, that really is the difference. So second on your handout there, um, sanctification is a process, which is what Frank mentioned. Um, so the Bible speaks about this definite beginning, but then it doesn't, uh, in this life, we don't see a definite end uh, until we die. This continues throughout our life. Uh, in this way, it is progressive. So we're to grow in holiness by God's grace for the rest of our lives. Could somebody read for us 2 Corinthians 3.18. 2 Corinthians 3.18. Who got it? Thank you. <laughs> I cut you off. I'm sorry. Thank you. Um, so as Jesse said, by beholding Christ, we're becoming more and more like him over time. Right? One degree of glory to another um, just by beholding Christ. Uh, it's a really, I think it's worth noting here that this progress over time takes place by beholding Christ, um, which happens not by staring at a picture of Jesus, but by beholding him in his word um, and in his church. And uh, that's how we're sanctified, by looking at Christ in his word um, and in his church. I think this is really unique to Christ, by the way. If I wanted to be more like Sam Dawson, um, I wouldn't just creepily stare at Sam Dawson for hours. Um, that wouldn't make a lot of progress, and it would probably freak him out. Um, but with Christ, his image is so powerful that as we behold him, we actually become like him. Um, over time. Just the act of looking at him makes us look more like him. Again, this is clearly talking about meditating on his word, gathering with his body made visible, the church. Um, but it's, it's really wonderful that we can just look at Christ and become like him. Uh, could somebody read Philippians 3, 13 through 14? Philippians 3, 13 through 14. awesome. What, what might you notice about Paul here in these verses? In Philippians 3, 13 and 14. Anything you notice about Paul? Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. He wasn't already there. He doesn't yet consider himself holy in the full sense of the word. So does he not, not know that he's justified? No, of course he knows he's justified. He's just showing us that sanctification is lifelong. Um, you don't get to put the hat up in this life. It's a process. And then third, <clears throat> on your handout there, perfect holiness is not going to happen in this lifetime. 
Um, complete and perfect sanctification is only attained in death. If you need any proof of this, honestly look at your life this week and uh, ask yourself, did I love the Lord my God with all my heart, my soul, my mind, and my strength this week? Um, if we're honest, all of us can answer that no. Um, you can also look to passages like 1 John 3, 2 and 3, um, where John says we'll be like Christ only when Christ appears and we see him as he is, which he's even playing off of what Paul was saying about beholding Christ and becoming like he is. Well, when we see Christ, according to 1 John, we will be like him when we see him as he is. Um, Hebrews 12 also says that it's only when we come into the presence of God that we'll be made perfect. So we cannot attain holiness in this life. And then finally, that last point um, on your handout, sanctification is a twofold process. So it's both our work and it's God's work. Um, this is most clearly on display in Philippians 2, 12 and 13. So I'm going to read Philippians 2, 12 and 13 for us real quickly. It says this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So there's kind of two sides to the coin in this verse. One, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Two, for it is God who works in you. Um, so this is one of those things where there's definitely tension in the text here. And I think we're supposed to feel that tension and we're not supposed to argue that away one way or the other. Um, so th kind of the first side of the coin, it's clear that this is God's work in us, sanctification. It's not just our own work. First um, Thessalonians 5 says this, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And Philippians 1 says, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. God is the primary actor in our, our sanctification, no doubt. Um, we talked about how the Holy Spirit, uh, when we talked about the Holy Spirit, how he's the person, the Godhead, intimately involved in this process of sanctification. Um, that's part of his work. Uh, the Spirit works within us to change our passions, desires, attitudes, and actions. But the other side of the coin is also clear. We ourselves are actively involved in the sanctification process. So we play both a passive role and an active role. Um, another place we can see our active role in Scripture is Romans 8:13, uh, which says this, If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So it's by God's power, by the Spirit, that we act and put to death the deeds of the body and are sanctified. It's something we do uh, but it's equipped by his power. Recognize in Romans 8.13, it's not the Holy Spirit that's commanded to put these deeds to death. It's the Christian who is. But only equipped by the power of the Spirit can we do it. So that's sanctification. Let's move on to perseverance. Because this one's awesome. Sanctification's awesome too. Okay, perseverance. Uh, one thing you might be wondering as we're going through all this um, is that this sounds really great and lovely, but will it always be mine? Um, is there a chance God would look at me, save me, regenerate me, justify me, adopt me, unite me with Christ, begin to sanctify me, and then give up on me? 
Um, so here's what UBC's statement of faith um, says on this matter of perseverance. It says this, We believe that those whom God has accepted in Christ and sanctified by his Holy Spirit will never totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere to the end. That their persevering attachment to Christ is the grand mark which distinguishes them from superficial professors. That the Godhead watches over their welfare, and that though they may fall through neglect and temptation into sin, whereby they grieve the Spirit, impair their graces and comforts, bring reproach on the church and temporal judgments on themselves, yet they shall be renewed again unto repentance and be kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. In other words, true Christians cannot lose their salvation. So let's dive into a few aspects um, of this as we kind of conclude this morning. Um, The first one there on your handout, all who are truly born again will persevere to the end. This is controversial in certain circles of the church, um, but frankly, it's clear as day in Scripture. Again, not meaning to insult anybody's church background at all, just trying to teach what Scripture says. Um, if you would, turn with me to John 6, 38 and f- through 40. John 6, 38 through 40. This is Jesus speaking. He says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Note the certainty of language in this passage. Jesus says he will lose none of those given to him. He will raise them up on the last day. He doesn't say, yeah, if everything goes right, I won't lose anybody. Or I really hope I don't lose anyone. Or even if they really hang in there, uh, I'm not going to lose them. No, it's I will not lose them. It's a promise of God. Just a few chapters later in John 10, if you want to turn there. Um, John 10, 27 through 29. Again, Jesus speaking in John 10, 27 through 29, says this, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father has given them to me, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Again, there's no uncertainty um, in Jesus' words. No one can snatch a Christian from God's hand. Not other people, not Satan, not even ourselves. No one can snatch a Christian from God's hand. We also see evidence of this in that God has put his seal on us um, in the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1, 13-14 says this, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The Spirit is our guarantee. Uh, You don't lose a guarantee. That's literally the whole point of a guarantee. Um, It is guaranteed. 
So I wonder if you struggle um, with this doctrine this morning that God will keep you to the end uh, if you're in Christ. I hope that verses like this that we've read are really a comfort to you um, this morning. However, there might be someone in here who would be most comforted not by these verses, but by a different set of verses and kind of a gentle rebuke. Um, So if you're still struggling to believe that God will keep you to the end, like you're like, but I've done this and this and this, um, I wonder if you're giving yourself too much thought um, in the salvation equation. So you might be thinking, how could God keep me when I did this and this and this, and yesterday I got angry for the millionth time. A week ago I gossiped for an hour straight, just like a non-believer. I can't seem to break this habit, etc. What do all these thoughts revolve around? Ourselves. They revolve around you. Uh, So if I could just gently rebuke you, I don't know that you're thinking much of Christ. Um, And I would exhort you to turn your eyes away from yourself and onto Christ on the cross, who declared, it is finished. He didn't say it's finished up until the 96th time you get angry, or it's finished unless you relapse. Um, It doesn't depend on you. That's the whole point. It depends on him. Turn your eyes away from your own sin, Turn your eyes onto his sinlessness, onto him lifted on the cross for you, knowing full well that you would sin yesterday. Let him be your confidence, not yourself. We will continue to fail, but our Savior never did fail, still hasn't failed. All his promises have been true. This one will prove no different. He will not leave you. He will not forsake you. If you're in Christ, he will hold you to the end. And praise God. If you're in Christ, your name is written in the book of life. It's been written there for a long time. And the book of life is not written in pencil. It's written in ink. If you're in that book, you're not getting erased out. We cannot and will not lose our salvation if we're in Christ Jesus. Rest assured that if you're in Christ, you are his for all eternity. God will keep you because it doesn't depend on you, but on him. John MacArthur has said, if you could lose your salvation, you would. Um, Funny quote. Probably true. Um, Just a final note on this first aspect. Uh, I've been really encouraged over the past couple years in thinking about this doctrine with regards to Alzheimer's and dementia. Um, When I was younger, I think I was terrified I'd get one of these diseases. And as I got older and basically, and, and just forget the gospel, forget God, Um, as the disease progressed and then thus basically lose my salvation because I've forgotten the gospel. Um, Again, I was thinking too much of myself um, in the equation. This doctrine means that if you're in Christ, God won't forget you even if you were to forget him by one of these diseases. How wonderfully comforting is that to those of us who may end up having a disease that eats away uh, at our minds. God does not forget his people. So second, um, on your handout... The second thing, only those who persevere to the end have truly been born again. Only those who persevere to the end have truly been born again. Um, You know, again, you might be sitting there going, this is great, but I've seen so many people that I grew up with or were influenced by who have now kind of deconstructed and walked away from the faith. Uh, They would no longer call themselves Christians. What about them? Uh, So I'm going to read another sentence from our statement of faith. But I want to first just say, uh, our statement of faith doesn't come from nowhere. 
Um, and this is classic. I'm teaching on the statement of faith right now. But um, it comes from historic church statements of faith, right? This isn't coming from nowhere. And those historic church statements of faith come directly from Scripture. Um, so I'm only reading the actual statement. But if you go on our website, uh, not only is there a paragraph of a statement, there's basically a whole other paragraph underneath that citing Scripture references, um, backing up that statement. Um, historically, these statements of faith have been hugely helpful tools in bringing, to, bringing together a whole Bible worth of thought into kind of one paragraph, one uh, place. So, of course, our statement of faith isn't authoritative, finally, or inerrant, right? There, there could be errors in our statement of faith. The scripture that backs it up, though, is uh, authoritative and, and inerrant. And what the statement is trying to do, what any good statement of faith is trying to do, is collect inerrant scripture and kind of summarize it all faithfully in one short place uh, on one topic. So, okay, sorry for the rant. Let's look at our statement uh, on those who have fallen away. So I read this uh, uh, as part of what I read earlier, but it says this, the believer's persevering attachment to Christ is the grand mark which distinguishes them from superficial professors. The believer's persevering attachment to Christ is the grand mark which distinguishes them. So while the Bible stresses the fact that God's power will keep the one who's been born again until the end, it also stresses the fact that only those who actually do persevere to the end can be said to have ever been truly born again. In other words, only the truly saved will continually evidence faith and repentance until death. So the really heartbreaking reality um, that the Bible presents to us is that those who fall away or those who deconstruct to the point of like abandoning the gospel, uh, we can be sure that they were never truly saved to begin with. It's heartbreaking. God does preserve the Christian in his faith. So perseverance is the true sign that one is truly a believer. Um, let's look quickly at Colossians 1, 22 and 23. Colossians 1, 22 and 23 says this. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. So remaining in the faith is one of the clear signs that someone is in the faith to begin with. Um, this verse is not at all meant to scare you if you're in Christ or if you struggle with a certain sin, but you're repentant over that sin. Um, if we're saved by God's grace, and that is the basis of our salvation, we can be sure we're not going to fall away um, by our works. We weren't saved by our works. We won't fall away by them. We can also be sure that God will grant us repentance when we sin. What this verse is meant to do is warn those who have fallen away uh, and continue in their sin and cease to exhibit signs or fruit of fruit of salvation. Their continued unrepentance, sadly, is evidence that their faith was never real to begin with. And then third, on your handout, um, those who finally fall away may give external signs of conversion, which is also heartbreaking um, because it looks like they're Christians. Um, so we may all know somebody who really looked like they were saved, right? They like walked an aisle, they prayed a prayer, 
They had an emotional experience um, at a camp or at a church. They were baptized, or so they thought. They looked like they were on the straight and narrow and that God was sanctifying them, and then they fell away or they walked away from the faith. What do we do with them? Were they saved? Um, What teaching or what parable of Jesus might you go to in order to answer this question? Yep, the parable of the sower. It's great. Um, Matthew 13 is where it's at. So I'm going to read Jesus' explanation to his disciples about what this parable means um, from Matthew 13. Verses 19 through 23 of Matthew 13. Jesus says this. He's explaining this parable of um, the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Maybe an external sign of conversion. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another 60, and in another 30. So recognize from this, sometimes the soil looks good, starts to spring up, and then quickly gets choked out. Um, It looked good at first, but over time it's clear that there was no root, um, and these people were not Christians. Uh, Personally, it's been really sad to watch friends and family that I grew up with um, walk away from the faith, and then read verses 21 and 22 and think this perfectly describes them. It's awful. Um, Some of them, I think, see persecution eventually coming for Christians. They kind of see it on the horizon. They see that they'll be mocked by the culture for certain biblical ideas, so they're falling away. That's verse 21. Others see money and power. They know they can't have both God and the world, God and money. So they abandon the one they love the least, God. That's verse 22. They'd never phrase it like that, of course, uh, but Matthew 13 puts it in perspective. Um, Another really terrifying verse about those who look like Christians but aren't is Matthew 7, 21 and 23. Um, And I'll read that real quick. Matthew 7, 21 through 23. This is Jesus' words. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Um, Jesus doesn't say, I knew you. And you turned away. Or I no longer know you. But rather, I never knew you. Um, Again, driving home this idea, there's no such thing as a loss of salvation. But there is such a thing as someone who thinks they're a Christian and they're not. Um, So again, true believers do not fall away. 
those who fall away, even if they have shown signs of conversion, um, were not Christians to begin with, according to Scripture. So I hope that talking through these doctrines has been incredibly comforting to you if you're a Christian. Um, These are not meant to scare Christians at all. These are meant to comfort Christians. God adopts you and cares for you as his child. He will sanctify you, um, and you will grow in holiness, and he will hold you to the end if you're in Christ. It is meant to, uh, in a good way, scare the non-believer, who scare the unrepentant, who might think that they're a believer. Um, So if you're feeling conviction um, and wondering if you're a Christian, please talk to somebody here. Um, Talk to me, talk to a friend, talk to an elder at this church. The great news, if you're like feeling conviction and you're like, I might not be a Christian, the great news is you can become a Christian now, today. Uh, God's plan of salvation is freely offered. You can become a Christian today. God will adopt you, sanctify you, and hold you to the end if you trust in Christ uh, alone for salvation and turn toward him and away from your sin. Does anybody have any questions before we wrap up, pray and wrap up, or comments? Yeah, no, I think. No, I think you're absolutely right. I think they, they mix, and justification certainly is about love. I mean, Jesus came because he loves the world, right? So, yeah, that's, that's wonderful. Really good. Anybody else? Comments or questions? Yeah. prodigal son well i think the end of that parable is is how you reconcile the things the prodigal son returned yeah repented um and so you know in this life it may be hard to even see uh with our human eyes if somebody is like yeah not a christian or a christian um but those who are christians will finally repent um that's what our statement of faith teaches too is that they come back Uh, there may be a season where it even looks like a christian's not a christian and they're not acting like it, and then they repent and come back. Um, does that answer that? Anybody else? Okay, let's pray. Lord, it's a joy to study your word. Thank you that we were able to gather and do that this morning. Um, Lord, we do pray that you would comfort those of us who are in Christ with these glorious doctrines, um, that we're your children that you're going to make us more like um, Jesus and uh, that you will hold us to the end. Lord, we pray that those would give us great comfort. Lord, we do pray that anybody who doesn't know you um, would hear the call of your word and repent and turn to Christ in faith. Um, Thank you for your plan of salvation. 
uh, thank you is too small a word. But Lord, we're in awe, and we pray that um, we would continually be in awe of what you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.